Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Today we're skipping ahead to uh, Anguttara Nikaya Book of Fours, Sutta 159, the Bhikkhuni Sutta. Bhikkhuni Sutta. The story goes that Ananda, this is actually not a teaching of the Buddha, but it's from Ananda, who is probably one of the best, most reliable sources of teachings of the Buddha besides the Buddha himself. Although there's a, there's a specific spin on things or, or flavor to things that Ananda teaches. He got in a lot of trouble with um, with with women. I guess he was rather good-looking, attractive physically. So he was staying in Kosambi in Gositarama. Where is Kosambi? That's uh, near Waisali, isn't it? Where is Kosambi? At uh, that time, a certain bhikkhuni said to a certain man, Ehi, come you, uh, man, go to Ananda, and Venerable Ananda, and approach him, and with my words, um, in my name, kind of, uh, bow down to him and say, Venerable Sir, there is a bhikkhuni who is sick, Dukita Balhagilana, she is very sick, suffering. And uh, she would like for you to come, she says. She bows down before you and says, it would be good if the Venerable Ananda would come to see me. He says, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. And he goes to see Ananda and says that to him. And Ananda gets up and takes his robe and bowls, robes and bowl, goes to see the bhikkhuni. And this bhikkhuni isn't actually sick. But when she sees Ananda coming from afar, she gets up and goes and lies down on her bed and pulls the cover up, pulls the covers up to her head or over her head. No. Yeah, covers herself from the head down, so up to her neck, I guess. See, she was attracted to him and uh, she wanted to see him and she wanted to somehow entice him. Apparently the Chinese version of the sutta, which is interesting to compare to, um... She exposes her body, and uh, when he sees her, he averts his eyes, and then she covers herself up. But in the Pali version, she pretends to be sick. But Ananda sees through it anyway. And he conceives of a teaching which is apropos, 
which is useful for her, which will be useful for her. And um, that's, a, I think, not quite why it's useful to us, but we'll see. It's, it's an interesting teaching, one that I thought worthy of bringing up. The teaching is that uh, this body, this being, uh, let's say this body, no? Because, you know, she's interested in body, his body in particular, and her body, their bodies, and the connection, the engaging in sexual intercourse. And he says, well, this body is originated from four things. He has to approach this in a certain way, and I think you find it interesting how he does. He says, this body is originated from in, of nutriment, food. Food brings about this body, and that being so, uh, we actually use nutriment, dependent on nutriment. Nutriment is abandoned. It should be abandoned. Nutriment should be abandoned through nutriment. So he concedes this. He concedes that nutriment is what is what sustains us, and uh, meaning meaning that it's what what brings us into to this life. It's what causes us to be reborn. A little more on this later, maybe. Um, but uh, but the way to abandon it is through nutriment. And it says. The second is it's originated from craving. So craving has helped to bring us to be born again, obviously. But dependence on craving, dependent dependent on craving, craving is to be abandoned. So you have to use craving to abandon craving. Tanna, thirst, desire. Desire is abandoned through desire. Number three, uh, this body is originated from conceit, so conceit, attachment to self. That's what causes us to be reborn. But but you have to, you need conceit. Dependent on conceit, conceit is to be abandoned. So you, the, the abandoning of the conceit is through conceit. So these three um, considered to be causes of well, suffering, causes of rebirth, but therefore suffering, and in general causes of suffering, but you have to use them, you have to make use of them, and there are ways of making use of them in order, and in, in ways that um, lead to their abandonment. But, this body has originated from sexual intercourse. It is not through sexual intercourse that sexual intercourse is to be abandoned. You see where he's going with this. He's clever little build-up. He doesn't say that exactly. He says, but in regards to sexual intercourse, the Blessed One has declared Setugata. And Setugata is an interesting interesting phrase. Setu is bridge. Gata is destruction. Or destroyed. The bridge is destroyed. The bridge is burnt, we would say. Meaning, it's, there, there's no, there's no room, there's no quarter for sexual intercourse. There's no benefit to it. 
which is reasonable because it's quite different from the other three. The other three are more basic. Sexual intercourse is a, a specific um, expression of sensual desire. Sensual desire being in no way beneficial. And then he explains these. So, nutriment. Well, there's four kinds of nutriment. There's the nutriment of physical food. There's um, contact is nutriment. So the contact between the mind and the body. There is... Uh, uh, consciousness is nutriment. So consciousness feeds... Um, experiences and feeds reactions and so on and then there's Mano Sanjeetanahara I think fourth one is intention intention is a type of food nourishment because it nourishes results as karma karmic results but uh, here he's, he's, he's sort of playing with this so he says you know we Nourishment is something that is to be abandoned, but you know, you're not really abandoning physical food. Mm. However, you use physical nourishment to abandon mental nourishment, to abandon the, the nourishment of the mind that causes attachment and aversion and delusion and so on. Um, but they're related because you have to use food in a certain way because obviously food is one of the most central um, causes of attachment. We, we are attached to food in, in many different ways because of our, our desire for it, our liking of it, and because of our ego and conceit in terms of it making us and um, giving us health and giving us strength and maybe making us fat or about keeping us ourselves thin and so, so we obsess over food in many different ways. And so the Ananda reminds her, or reminds us all, gives this teaching that of the Buddha that food should be used wisely. And we should reflect upon what the food is for. The food is to keep us alive. It's not to um, strengthen us or beautify us. Or it's not for entertainment or sensual addiction. To keep you alive, because without it you die. And so, if you use it wisely, you avoid all the problems, and you're able to free yourself from the mental growth, the growth of mental defilement. That one's simple. The second one, craving, is more interesting. And this is Ananda particularly. I'm not really convinced that this is something the Buddha ever taught. Um, but there's another place where Ananda mentions this. And of course this is a question we get a lot. Well, don't you want to meditate? And he's right to an extent. Um, there is a desire to meditate. People have the desire. So someone hears about another person who become enlightened, they, or they see someone who became enlightened, and they think, oh, when will I, with the destructions of the taint, destruction of the taints, realize for myself its direct knowledge? When will I become enlightened? So they have a yearning for enlightenment. But that yearning causes them to strive, right? So the commentary here says it's something interesting. It's, it's unwholesome. But um, it's not going to lead them to reborn, be reborn. It's going to lead them 
to practice to give up craving. So it's an it's a curious little dilemma that that you you should require wanting in order to give up wanting. But I've talked about this before. It's preliminary sort of thing. I mean, it's when you're all messed up in the mind already, and it doesn't requ it isn't required. You don't need desire to start meditating. You just need wisdom and understanding. But definitely there is a sense of desiring to meditate. People want to meditate. That wanting is actually problematic. In the end you have to give it up, obviously. But, but you, start to s you give it up because you start to see that wanting to meditate isn't really any, any good to you. Meditation should come because of you know, simple mindfulness. and you, you have the time and you think, what will I do? Well, I should meditate. Why? Because I still have attachments. And if I don't meditate, those attachments will stay, will grow, will fester, and so on. And so, through craving, craving is to be abandoned. And the third one is interesting, but, but it's very true. Um, conceit. Conceit, is, conceit brings us here. Conceit, attachment to self, causes us to want to be born here and there, and causes us to cling to things and it feeds our craving, it feeds our addictions, it feeds our ego. But there's a certain conceit that propels you towards meditation. When you see someone else practicing meditation or becoming enlightened, you think, well, I can do that. Right? There's a sort of a conceit, a sense of, hmm, of, of self-worth, of confidence in yourself. I can meditate. And you need that kind of confidence, at least in the beginning. Again, it's in the same boat as craving. It's something that pushes you to do something, especially when you feel uh, somehow like your ego is going to be threatened by these people who can do something that you can't. You feel you, you hear about this being the way to a higher state, and you think, "Well, I'm, I'm not inferior to these people," and you puff yourself up and meditate. Out of, out of conceit until eventually you realize that the conceit is just causing you suffering and then you give it up but that sort of thing as well I mean even anger could lead you to to, uh, to meditation you're so sad and frustrated about your suffering and that causes you to want to meditate but all of this is it's, it's not something to be overemphasized you can't therefore say, well, then craving is not a problem. It absolutely is a problem. It's just that it has to be admitted that sometimes these things when can be directed towards meditation in such a way that they cause you to meditate to the point where you see that they are a problem. But sexual intercourse doesn't do that. So Ananda says, sexual intercourse isn't something that you can engage in and... and and because of engaging in sexual intercourse, he's, he's basically giving her this, you know, in a roundabout way, trying to uh, soften the blow of telling her, you know, the sexual intercourse isn't useful, isn't beneficial. What you want from me is not going to help you. And she gets all upset and realizes how, how bad, how what a fool she had been, and she says, "Oh, I've." done something very foolish and stupid and unskillful. And he says, yes, yes you did, but 
Since you have seen it and you make amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, we accept it, for it is growth in the Noble One's discipline that one sees one's transgressions and makes amends for them and undertakes future restraint. That's a standard. That, that whole passage is standard. It's common for people, usually with the Buddha, to realize that they were foolish and apologize, and the Buddha says the same thing. Yes, yes, you were foolish. No question, but um, good for you for admitting it and uh, making amends for it, apologizing, and then for your restraint in the future, for changing. So, anyway, not a huge dhamma, but I had to skip a lot of others to get to that one, so I thought, well, better stop at something. It's an interesting teaching, I think. Let's get on to meditate. To questions, do we have any questions here? Robin, hit me with we some do. questions. We do, Bhante. Hello, Bhante. When I'm doing tasks outside of formal slow walking meditation, I feel unnatural to do active noting as the body motion is faster and varied, such as when ironing clothes. But as the body movement is going on, I think I'm being silently aware of the motion through the quality of the awareness, though the quality of the awareness feels clouded or heavy. What is the right way to practice outside of formal practice, or is that a lost state of mind? Okay, I read that they, uh, they, they continue on down below. Same person. Oh, okay, thanks. Continuation of above question. If I know ironing, ironing, my mind feels more, more dull and torpor. But if I try to mentally note the movements of ironing, I find the noting comes after the noted movement has passed. I mean, eventually you can get quicker at it so that you're able to note it and you should probably not iron, for example, so quickly so there's that uh, especially if you want to make it a mindful exercise but um, yes, in, in, in certain cases you would just make a general note like ironing, ironing that keeps you aware of, you know, and focused on this is just movements, this is just, uh, just ironing you know. keeps you objective about it at any rate it's not lost. may not be as clear, but uh, you know, hence why we try to stay in our rooms and try not to get caught up in worldly things as much. But certainly you know, be mindful as you can, adapt it. The only point is to stay objective about it. I have been practicing meditation for a couple of weeks now and I am able to sit and watch my breath and calm down my mind to a certain level of concentration on the breath but after a while it tends to get boring and I wish to stop at this stage because I notice nothing seems to be happening progressing after reaching that stage my question is how to deal with boredom what should I do when I experience this state of mind sir 
You didn't click answer, did you? I didn't, no. Start over? No, that's not really important. Um, I'm not even sure that you're practicing meditation the way we practice, so if you're not, there's not much I can do to help you. I recommend you read my booklet on how to meditate, and then you would learn what to do, because if you're bored, in our tradition, you would say bored, bored, and then it would go away after some time, and that would be that. Bhante, regarding strong feelings, thoughts, I find noting them till they are completely gone helps, but they come in waves which seem to last long. Currently I stay with them for as long as it takes. Do you recommend this is better or should I ignore it after some time, even if it is, even if it's there a bit and bring the mind back to the rising and falling? Thank you. Well, be careful that, you're, you're sh that it really is there and you're not just like noting it after it's in between the waves. If it, if it comes and then it goes, come back again to your main object, even if you know it's going to come soon again. Um, that's better. You, know, you want to be, you're trying to cultivate flexibility, so staying with something for a long time is easy, but it's probably not so accurate because it's not always there. It's not going to help you in the long run to get a, a, a more precise understanding of the nature of your mind as compared to being, you know, going, going, being precise and saying it, it stopped there. There's no more anger there, because then you're more focused on on the actual reality of it. Oh, the anger is there now; it's gone, uh, rising, falling. Oh, it's back again. Okay. Then if you just say angry, angry, and you're not really aware that it's actually gone, and then come back, that kind of thing. It's recommended generally to come back to the rising and falling. If something does stay for a long time, then after a long time. Even if it doesn't go away, you should put it aside and come back to the rising and fall. But do acknowledge it for quite some time. It's good. If you can hear a sound predominantly through the left ear or right ear, does that mean that the ears are two different sense doors? And how would you classify that part of the mind that uses that information to figure out from what direction and how far away a sound is coming from? Is that part of the knowing of the sound? Uh, no. So let's see. The, the hearing doesn't even happen in the br in the in the ear. It happens in the brain. So, um, but that's that's not really significant. Uh, what's important? The, the the ear door is that. Um, physical base that feeds the mind, uh, auditory stimulation. So it doesn't matter what part of the body it is, or even if there is a part of the body. The ear door is the connection between the physical and the mental. The physical sound and the uh, mind which receives the sound. So there's not two, two doors. Uh, as far as the thought or the perception, you might say, that would be sanya or sankara. I'm not really clear which one, but um, when you're aware that something is near or far or left or right or so on, that would be something different. That would arise. It would it would arise based on the sound, but 
it would be a thought that arises or a perception that arises in the mind. No thought, but the perception, ah, yes, left, right. It's probably a sankara, but maybe considered sanya. Um, there are two questions here, so I guess we'll do them one at a time. Okay. I am worried about my karma. Whenever I feel I've progressed and feeling better and happier, something bad happens to someone that surrounds my life. For example, someone just died. This has happened to me throughout my life. 41 years. Not by death necessarily, but by some bad occurrences that seem related to my feeling better. Yep, superstitious, but still, do you believe in karma? So could this be in relation to anything with it? I mean, lots of different things can happen. There are strange things that happen where bad things continuously happen and get in the way of people feeling happy. Uh, karma is very, very complicated, but there are other issues at play. Um, when you're very happy, bad things hit you worse, as perhaps you can see. When um, when you're you're when you're attached to something, anything that disrupts that is far more unwelcome. This is why we try to be at peace and try to let go of these good feelings and feelings that I've progressed are very dangerous because it's a clinging, it's a delusion, it's an, it, it's a delusion of stability and and now you're seeing impermanence. You're seeing that that feeling of feeling better and feeling happy is impermanent and therefore it's unsatisfying and so you shouldn't cling to this feeling of progress or so on um, because you're setting yourself up for a fall what you should be learning from this is that uh, you can't control the future and therefore you should learn to be more flexible not let bad things get to you not let good things get to you learn to be at peace no matter what comes And, when, and don't worry about your karma. Karma isn't something you should worry about. Worrying is unwholesome. You should say worried, worried. Karma is something you should purify. Learn to do only good things. Does one keep noting in sitting meditation, rising, falling, until another object arises? Like in walking meditation? Because on some of your videos, you mentioned that you could note an object twice, three times, or maybe even once is enough. I don't really understand how those two things are related. Yes, one keeps noting sitting meditation, rising, noting rising, falling until another object arises, that's clear. But I don't see how that relates to noting things once, twice, or three times. But, uh, you know, if all else, if when in doubt, note something three times. When, if something is very brief, you can note it once or twice. And and you know, three times is not even even appropriate. You would note it until it disappears, regardless of what that is. Once, twice, three times, five times. Sorry, I'm, my first teacher was big on the three times, so he would note he would have us note pain three times. But Ajahn Tong doesn't do that. Ajahn Tong would have you note pain, pain until it goes away. Until, unless after a long time it doesn't go away, then you come back to the rising form. 
Pante, when you say a long time, like how how long would be a long time? When you feel it's a long time. I'm purposefully not giving you a time. I mean, it's not going to be like that. It's a sense that, well, yeah, that's enough of that. Okay. It's sort of, the, I guess, sort of, I would suggest the sense that your mind has has given up any attachment to, any potential for attachment to that object. It's like, seen enough. And you feel com comfortable leaving it without any concern for there being an attachment to it. When you're over it. When you're over it. Greetings, Pante. In the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, it is noted that one should always remain aware of the impermanence of all phenomena. Is that correct? For example, one should be aware of body in body internally and externally, while also observing the arising and passing away of phenomena in the body. Another example, in the Sampajana Pabang section, it is stated that one constantly doing Sampajana at all times. Doesn't this mean thoroughly understanding the impermanent nature of one's experience? So while being mindful, shouldn't I remind myself of the impermanence of my experience so as to remain equanimous? No, that doesn't follow. There's no such thing as reminding yourself of the impermanence of experience. I mean, it sounds reasonable, but you have to understand what you're asking. It's like, suppose I tell you to look at a tiger, and I say, you know, because I want you to see the stri stripes on the tiger. And then you say to me, you ask me, well, okay, if I want to see them, should I remind myself as I'm watching the tiger that the tiger has stripes? Would that seem reason like a reasonable question to you? Because the answer is, of course, no. What are you, what are you crazy? The, look at the tiger, you'll see the stripes. No, you didn't switch. We're still on the last one. Oh, sorry. I'm going to screw up the Martin's system. I don't see the last one. Oh, I still see it being answered. Maybe I'm just delayed. Did you did you mark the new one as as being asked, being answered? Yes. So, okay. so I think this is part of the new one. Um, I'm currently meditating for at least three hours a day and would like to increase this time, but I'm finding resistance. I groan inwardly at the thought of doing yet another session and sometimes have to force myself to start. Then once I'm in a session, I've been longing for the session to end. Is there such a thing as pushing oneself too much in the beginning or should I just be noting the resistance? If I just did two or three hours a day for a while longer, could it become easier to increase the time more comfortably? I think of the meditators on your residential courses meditating for so many more hours a day than I and wonder how they manage it. It's meant to bring up these these emotions. I mean, it's meant to challenge you. You don't want to push yourself too hard that it drives you crazy. So it's up to you how much you feel comfortable doing. But it should be uncomfortable. It's meant to evoke these these negative emotions so you can learn to overcome them. You can learn to see that they're the problem. There's nothing wrong with meditating. The problem is the groaning inwardly, the, the disliking of something. Meditation is... The idea is for us to see that and to learn a better way. 
to refine our reactions to things. So that you're reacting to meditation is great because you can meditate on that. It's not easy, but it, uh, it's the only way. Hello, Bhante. Often I desire to meditate because of the calm state and clarity it brings. Should one meditate when this desire arises, or is this reinforcing meditation for the wrong reasons? Perhaps scheduling time to meditate regardless of the desire to do it is a way to bypass this issue? It's a way to bypass it. If you want to meditate, say wanting, wanting. If you like the calm, say liking, liking. If you feel calm, say calm, calm. Hi Bhante, I incline toward a scientific view on afterlife. When you die, the only things that stay in the world are the effects of your interactions with it as a, as a continuation of karma. But all experiences that have been interacting with each other only in your brain come to a sudden stop and just result in some insignificant amount of thermic energy to get free as the electrical signals are no longer produced and the remaining just warm up in the resistor. I don't want to stick to this view as I know that truth will eventually get to me when I keep my eyes open and meditate, but is it better to just give it up now, not having any view on it at all? This view stops me from taking the point of view that you are talking about. Having no fixed view at all would leave me having nothing to answer to people who ask me about it. I would say for developing right morals, neither of them would interfere with my practice, but don't know this for sure. Yeah, I would give up that view, <laughs> absolutely, because it's missing a very crucial point. I mean, these electric signals and resistors are have nothing to do with consciousness. They are physical. They're mimicking brain activity, but uh, there is something outside of physics and that's the mind. There's no question of that. That is, it is outside of physics. Now, the question of what that thing is or what gives rise to it is, is a different issue, but anyone who, who says that the mind is a physical thing is, is spouting the absurd because it's obviously not physical. I don't know. I mean, there are many people who would... Uh, react negatively to such a statement but that I think is probably where you should start and, and hopefully you can come to the conclusion that yes the mind exists outside of that it's not physical the mind is not physical that physical is actually dependent on uh, our observations using the mind we require the mind to observe the physical and to make calculations and judgments about the physical measurements um, but regardless more important is that you look at reality from that point of view from the point of view of, of the first person point of view of your experience and I think it might be a pri that might be the pragmatist approach I can't remember now but um, the idea is to look at the look at the 
world from first principles, you know, not some theoretical, impersonal universe out there that may or may not exist, and and in which form it exists, we don't, we know not. Um, but from the point of view of what you can know, you can know seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, these things do exist, they're real, much more real than physics. Physics is conventional. It could, the whole of the physical universe could change in a moment. We have no proof that it won't. But seeing will always be seeing, hearing will always be hearing, smelling will always be smelling, thinking will always be thinking. They, they can't change or they would no longer be what they are, right? But the speed of light could change tomorrow. There's nothing that says that it can't, except physics. You know? It could all just change. Gravity. Gravity could suddenly change. Mm, it doesn't quite answer your question, I suppose, but... Yeah, it's just important. The most important thing is to look at the world from a point of view of experience. That's all you need for Buddhism. You don't need any views. How about being concerned about having an answer when people ask you about things? That's yeah, so like I just did. Seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing. Don't have to worry about such things. Ante, would you say that even coarse desires can make one progress in meditation? For example, Prince Nanda seems to have meditated meditated just to get angel maidens. Well, yeah, but the Buddha had to shame him before he actually started putting his heart into it. I would doubt that that was actually considered useful. He kept him as a monk, you might say, but uh, I think, no? But uh, it wasn't until the Buddha shamed him that he actually put his heart into it, I think. I know, it's all the karma is very, it's very hard to predict what something is going to do for a person. You could set up a theoretical situation where intense karma leads to enlightenment. Like you could say, Angulimala's horrible, horrible deeds were great because they led him to the Buddha. Right? They weren't, but you could argue that. I mean, it's very conjectural and, and theoretical but what we know for sure is bad things have a bad result good things have a good result that's why we call them bad and good last night I stated during walking meditation I experienced that I'm not the person that is walking is it just best to know I didn't communicate my experience correctly I have experienced many times the disorientation state you thought I was describing, but this is not that one. In this experience, my whole identity just drops away, as if I'm only awareness and no longer a person. I am completely something else. It's a positive state compared to the disorientation state you described. It can't be achieved by working for it or grasping for it. You can't keep it if you judge it or try to stay within it or try to go deeper. I assume your definition of noting is only being aware and not judging experience. Is it best to just note? Thanks for your help. It's best to just note. But the whole I am completely something else is just your, your view. It's, that's not worth keeping. You are not anything. There's only experience. 
Can you download your booklet on meditation? That's some syntactic ambiguity if ever I've seen it. Who's the you? You or me? Can I download my booklet? I certainly can. Do you want me to? You know, are you asking for me to do it for you, or are you asking if you can do it? That's an incredibly ambiguous question. But, but it can, it can be downloaded. <laughs> I think it can, yes. And uh, you can hand it out to other people. You can copy it, print it, do what you want with it. As long as you can do what you want with it. If you give it away for free, then you have my blessing. If you try to sell it, then you don't have my blessing. But I'm not going to stop you. We, we do have our volunteer project with the hard copies of the booklets, too. They're on the route from Sri Lanka to various places, and we'll put it on the website um, if anyone wants to request a print copy of the book. I think you're all caught up on questions, Bhante. Okay. Thanks, Robin. Thank thanks you, Bhante. Thanks, everybody, for your questions. Have a good night.